0: okay well we'll go ahead and get started today with the 140th psalm to the chief musician this is a psalm of david deliver me o lord from evil men preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts they continually gather together for war they sharpen their tongues like a serpent the poison of asps is under their lips selah keep me o lord from the hands of the wicked preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble the proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me, Selah. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O Lord, O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted, Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let their, the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Heavenly Father, We do thank you for the opportunity to meet out here. And despite people that don't want us here, it is a pleasure to preach your word to the people that are willing to hear it in this beautiful spot. And we thank you for the ability to uh, do that. And uh, as the psalmist said, let not the wicked prosper in this way or overcome us, lest they be exalted. We thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, you've brought us once again to uh, be able to praise you and to give you the honor and the glory that you're due and to exalt your holy name. And I would pray for each person that was not able to make it here today. Some are traveling and some are uh, doing other things in life that you would be with them and uh, guide them through the week and uh, maybe uh, provide them a sermon on a radio station or something to help build them up and edify them and help them to uh, just think on the things that you would have them think on throughout the week ahead. And Lord, may this service be pleasing to you and may uh, the words of the sermon be right and proper in your uh, ears. And uh, let me not depart from the truth of your word. And Lord, uh, I just thank you for the uh, opportunities that lie ahead of us in the week ahead and the food that you'll bless us with and every good blessing that will come down from you that we're certain of. And when you withhold your hand of grace from us and uh, you uh, cause affliction in our lives, help us to remember that that is also from you and that uh, we should uh, handle that in an honorable way in your presence and to give you glory for it. And uh, we just thank you and we praise you for everything that you've done for us. What a great and wonderful creator you are above all for sending your son, our Lord Jesus, to die on the cross and to take the sin debt that we owe upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. What a gift. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Today's sermon is gonna be Genesis Thirty-one verses 14 through 30. This is called Jacob's Flight. And um, you know that every week before we get into the actual sermon, I like to uh, give you this day in history. And today is no different. Today is 26 May. And uh, some of the things that I'm going to talk about in the sermon today are going to be very, uh, uh, you know, they're going to probably upset some people. uh, But this is the way of the world. And I'm not talking about here. You may uh, agree with what I'm going to say, but other people may be walking by and they may hear something that they don't want to hear. But um, it it ties in with actually what happened on this day in history. The first thing that happened was a man named William of Ockham. He was a philosopher from the 13th century. He was forced to flee Avignon by Pope John the 22nd. And this man was a great theologian. He was a great Philosopher, He had a, a theological mind uh, comparable, not quite to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, but he was a very intelligent man. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Occam's razor. That was something that he developed. Occam's razor basically teaches that entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily. And what that means is when you have a competing theory, you've got a theory, say, of uh, evolution or a theory of uh, whatever, Uh, It can be a philosophical theory or a scientific theory, Uh, competing theories that make the same point, the simpler one is better. In other words, uh, we'll say the theory of evolution, which is not a a factual thing, it's a theory, but uh, say somebody says uh, he has 20 precepts to point to the fact that we evolved from the slime pits. And this person has three and they come to exactly the same conclusion. Occam would say, use this theory. And the reason why is because this person has unnecessary information to get you to this point. And the reason why it's called Occam's razor, his name is Occam, and razor means cutting away the fat. So um, I was thinking about that from a biblical standpoint is that we have people that disagree on theological issues. Every church does, uh, or every individual does eventually. There's something we're going to disagree on. Um, And you wanna state your case and you wanna do it from the Bible, okay? Uh, then you want to use your intellect and you want to use your reason to come to a uh, a solution as to what the Bible is telling us. And somebody else is going to have their premise. And if they come to the same conclusion and this guy has 20 points and this guy has three, Occam's razor would say, use this one. However, when using the Bible, you will have people that will misapply verses to make their point against what you're saying. So this guy has a much more, we'll say, uh, detailed Uh, reason as to why we're coming to this point and this guy doesn't, he actually may be the better simply from a biblical uh, perspective. And the reason why is because he may be refuting things that people are saying that are not right. And I'll give you an example of something that's not right in the Bible. Um, I believe that you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and it is eternal in nature. You can never lose that. And uh, yesterday, somebody, uh, a nice guy on Facebook posted that here's something for all you once saved, always saved people, which is, um, and then he cut and pasted or actually put a link to something that somebody typed. It was very convoluted. Uh, The first premise that he used in this uh, dissertation as to why you're not once saved, always saved was, I think it was Revelation 2 verse 19, where it says that uh, if you don't do these things, I will come and remove your candlestick from you. Well, you can't use that for an individual salvation because a candlestick is picturing the church it's not picturing the individual and what he's saying is that your church is no longer a valid entity within my church, and so I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. It has nothing to do with an individual, and therefore that may be something you need to defend against in your uh premises so uh but the whole point is that Occam was a great guy, and what happened he was uh, in disagreement with the Pope about an issue. And the issue in particular with Occam was that he believed you should be living a life of a monk. You should have no possessions and you should uh, you know, live off of what other people give you. And he said, that's what Jesus did. and the Pope disagreed with that because it's very uh, you know, wealthy and ostentatious in the uh, papal circles by this time. But um, uh, it was an argument that never should have been uh, submitted anyway. Because when Jesus lived, he was living under the old covenant and he was fulfilling the old covenant on our behalf. And so it doesn't apply to the church age anyway from that perspective. In the church age, you're gonna have rich people, you're gonna have poor people, you're gonna have people that have big houses that can honor the Lord with them. And you have people that you know live in simple lives in honor of the Lord. So it was, it was a pointless argument that they were coming against each other. And anyway, uh, this guy was not the Pope and so he ended up fleeing. Um, We'll go on another one in same basic idea in 1521 Martin Luther who was really he wasn't the founder of the Protestant Reformation but he was really an impetus behind it Um, he was banned by the edict of worms because of his religious beliefs and writings Uh, as we've talked about in the past you have the Holy Roman Empire they control pretty much all of Europe and they don't want any dissension well he's a dissenter he was a Catholic priest And he said, this isn't right. We're not following the God of the Bible. We're following all these crazy things that Catholicism has added into the Bible. And we want to get back. And here's my 90 thesis as to why this is. Well, they took him to this place and they stood him before the council and they said, you need to recant. And he knew what that meant. If you don't recant, the same thing that happened to John Huss a couple hundred years ago where he was uh, burned at the stake is going to happen to you. And he said, listen, I stand on this and I can do no other. This This is God's word and I'm not going to add to it, and I'm not going to waffle in my convictions. And he faced that. And as I said, we are starting to face that in our country. It's been happening a little more since about the 1960s to the point where people are embarrassed to even say the name of Jesus. And uh, it's it's only gonna get worse. It's not going to get better because the days are coming to their fulfillment, and Christ is going to return to his people who are planted in their land, and the world is gonna start focusing on them soon before that happens, Christians are going to start being taken out of the picture. Um, 1647, a new law, this is, talk about the shoe on the other foot. All three of these happened on 12 May, and I didn't plan this. I mean, I typed the sermon that I uh, typed five weeks ago, and I had no idea it was coming on 12 May until Monday when I do this part of the, uh, the uh, service. But a new law banned Catholic priests from the colony of Massachusetts. So here are the shoes on the other foot. We wanna get away from what's going on in Europe. We come to this country to worship God in spirit and in truth and what we believe is from the Bible and not from uh, man and from tradition. And uh, they did not want that brought into uh, America. These Catholic priests coming in and saying, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. And they actually passed a law in Massachusetts where Catholic priests were banned from ministering to the people. Catholics were not, but Catholic priests were. And The uh, penalty was banishment for the first time, death for the second. So um, uh, the shoe is on the other foot and this is how we are going in America at this point. And I want you to know that the state of Massachusetts, the most liberal and anti-God state in the nation right now, still has in their constitution, because I've read all 50 of the constitutions of the United States, um, they have in their constitution the most God-honoring precepts, including, As a Protestant minister, I could go there and demand that the state pay for a church for me. And they have to because their constitution says that. Imagine that, it's still in their constitution to this day that Protestants may and shall be funded by the state. So this thing about separation of church and state was completely foreign to the the writers of our uh, uh, state constitutions and the government at large. And I will tell you that uh, having read all 50 state constitutions, every single one of them mentions God. Most of them as the supreme sovereign ruler, some of them as you know the Lord or through Jesus Christ, whatever, but they all mention God in one way or another. Um, in uh, 1791, the French assembly forced King Louis XVI to hand over the crown and state assets. So the French Revolution did not go quite the way the American Revolution did. There were a lot of heads that came off at that time. There was a lot of death and mayhem. They, uh, you know, they took a different path than England as well, where they got rid of the monarchy completely. And uh, two years later, this man was executed. So um, uh, that's the path that France chose and they've had many constitutions since this time and we've had one. So uh, the fact that God is the one who established this nation and we acknowledge that is what has kept us as a people. And as I said, as soon as we start removing God, the nation starts to fall apart. But that was uh, 1791 in France. And then this day, 26 May in uh, 1836, the U.S. House of Representatives adopted the gag rule. And it's a gag rule is something that is now applies to a lot of things. Um, they can pass a law and say, we will not interfere in this particular issue or that and try to find the House of Representatives of the United States of America gagging themselves on anything anymore with the exception of religion. It's not going to happen. They, they, they want complete control over what's going on in the nation. Um, not complete. I mean, there are people in there that don't. I'm talking about the policies that are coming out of there. But um, uh, at the time, this gag rule in 1836 was against slavery. And you talk about people that had, at that time, no moral convictions. They said, we will not interfere in any state um, uh, choice about slavery. If they want to have slaves and if this is part of their state uh, governance and policy and constitution, we will not interfere in that. And uh, they were saying, we believe in states' rights. Well, you know, like I said, the Congress believes in states' rights when it's something that they don't want to get involved in. And slavery was so touchy that they said, we just weren't, we're going to gag ourselves on the issue of slavery. And it cost us in the end, 600,000 some people uh, through a war because we did not want to acknowledge that all people are human beings, black and white and yellow and red and, and uh, that, that God created one man and every man descended from him and they didn't want to acknowledge that and that's why we went through this and it almost break, brings me to tears right now to think that we would limit a human being's right to be called a human being. Uh, but that was the gag rule of 1836. In 1864, the territory of Montana was organized. And uh, I don't know if anybody here has been to Montana. I went to all 50 states in 2010. And uh, I went through Montana and some of the best memories I had were the two weeks that I spent there with my friend, Ed. And uh, we went to a trappers convention. We went to Butte, Montana. We went to abandoned silver mines. And Ed just treated me to a, a country that is so different than what we think of as America today. It's just so beautiful and wonderful. And if you want to get a little glimpse of that, Um, Mom has a a set of DVDs that she let me borrow. I think it's a four part series on, uh, uh, it's called Lonesome Dove. And uh, Lonesome Dove is a town in Texas. Uh, There's a cattle farmer there, and he wants to be the first person to be a cattle farmer in Montana. And so this Lonesome Dove details their trek from Texas with all of their goods and all of their supplies and all of their cattle heading up to the territory of Montana. And it really is an adventure. I think there might've been a couple bad words in there. I I don't remember, but I think there might've been. So I want to let you know about that in advance. But it was a really heart touching series nonetheless. And uh, it's something I recommend that people see. If you want to see how people lived back then and the the struggles they had and the, uh, the, the, the troubles and the trials, but people forged ahead. And this is one of the things is making Montana a territory and eventually a state. Um, the uh, 1865 arrangements were made in New Orleans for the surrender of Confederate forces west of the Mississippi. So the Civil War is ending, all of the people west of the Mississippi need to uh, uh, surrender. And uh, once again, as is always the case with America, whether it's a civil war or whether it's a war from outside, we're very gracious with the enemies. Full pardon was given to anybody that laid down their weapons and uh, the country was very quickly reunited. And uh, this occurred in New Orleans on this day in 1865. And uh, as I said, that war would not have happened. It may have happened anyway, despite slavery, but slavery became a very large part of that war. And a lot of people died because of our inability to uh, look beyond color and look beyond racial and national and cultural distinctions. And I would hope that everybody here, if you have that in you, Uh, that you would work on that and try to find peace in yourself with all people, regardless of who they are. Now, you're going to disagree with people, hopefully religiously, because that's what Jesus asks us to do. But as far as being a human being, I don't care if they're a Muslim, pray for them, give them uh, everything you can as a human if they're suffering. This is what we're called to do as people. Um, Let's go on, 1868. I'm sorry, I got a little frog in my throat today, so I'm not talking very well, but... uh, uh, U.S. President Andrew Johnson was acquitted by one vote of all uh, charges in his impeachment trial. Now, an impeachment, people misunderstand what that is. An impeachment means that charges are brought against you. It doesn't mean you're removed from office. Um, an impeachment uh, occurred only twice in uh, presidential history. Does anybody know the other person who was impeached? Clinton. William Jefferson Clinton. That's correct. So uh, two presidents have been impeached and uh, uh, both of them were found not guilty. And, uh, you know, I, unfortunately, I don't know anything about what Johnson did. I didn't read up on it, but I do know that Bill Clinton was guilty. And uh, it's not to slam Bill Clinton, but he was just guilty, and there's no doubt about it. But they decided not to remove him from office. And what happens is the House of uh, uh, Representatives introduces impeachment proceedings. If it uh, passes the House, then it goes to the Senate. The Senate is the one that has the trial and the Supreme, the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is the one that presides over that trial with the Senate as the voting body. that's how an impeachment works. And uh, uh, one other person was facing impeachment but was not impeached because he resigned. And that was Richard Milhouse Nixon. Once again, he was guilty and there's no doubt about it, but uh, he resigned and then he was given a pardon by Ford Ford uh, said whatever he's done can't be held against him, and so uh, that took care of that. And uh, sometimes it's better to step aside and save a nation the trouble than to go through it. But uh, Bill Clinton took the chance, as did Andrew Johnson, and they both prevailed in it. Um, And that's, you know, knowing your Senate is a real important thing, because you can get impeached and say nothing's going to happen, which would happen today. I mean, we have a majority Democrat Senate, so if they impeach Barack Obama, Probably nothing would happen, but that's how that works, and that's something that a president needs to evaluate and see do I have the votes in the Senate or not? <clears throat> 1908 in Persia, the first oil strike was made in the Middle East. Now, what is Persia today? It's changed names, Iran. Iran that's right. So, the very first oil strike ever in the Middle East was found in Iran. Right. And um, if you follow the Bible and if you follow how God has put everything together on the earth, you will see that God has strategically placed oil around the world to meet the needs of his plan of redemption for all people. And I got to tell you what, it's the same with anything. The amount of gold that's in Alaska will fit God's purposes. The amount of silver that's down in mines in Chile will fit God's purposes. Everything about this world is so beautifully orchestrated by a God that understands the plan that he has to bring people to the place of redemption and how to get the word out through this world by doing these things and what makes people want to move to say california in 1949 or 1849 what made them want to do that well it's because there's gold out there and the gospel went with those people not all of them but some of them and as i said god is infinitely wise so we can look at this oil in the middle east and we can see even today god's hand being worked out through the oil in the middle east Israel is back in the land, all of the people around them are against them. And this is all by God's wisdom, to bring his people back in so that someday they will call on him again and say, we've made a mistake and he's going to return to them some glorious day. So here you go. I mean, it's a a wonderful thing to think about. And I would ask each one of you to do this. As you walk around and you think about life, think about God in that life. Think in everything you do, let God be on your mind and in your thoughts. And if you do that, you will see his hand in everything. You'll see it in the sunrise, you'll see it in the trees and and in how he has moved people around and developed uh, certain things in certain countries to meet the goals that are coming in the end. Oh, what a wise God we serve. He's wonderful. Um, 1938, the House Committee on Un-American Activities began its work of searching for subversives in the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say where I'm going with this, but here they're searching them out in, ni- in 1938, and now we have them running our government. I mean, the same people that they were trying to get rid of are the people that are up there right now making decisions that are affecting us. And the things that are written in the 1950s in the Communist Man- Manifesto are things that are being implemented day by day and year by year in America right now. And people don't want to read these things and say, that really was written in 1959 and those things are being worked out in our lifetime. But that's where we're at. And um, uh, I just, it it kind of breaks my heart. You know, we're doing these things and we're doing them to ourselves because of one thing. We've kicked God out of our lives. We've kicked the Lord Jesus out of our lives. And that is what's bringing us to the point that we're in. We now want things from our government instead of wanting to provide for our own families and we want the world to take care of us when in fact there's no no precept for example of health care in the bible people just lived their lives and they went to a doctor there wasn't some government entity that did these things and i'm not espousing against that i'm just simply saying that we want and when you want you forget god and that's something that we can't do is we can't forget our creator in 1946 on this day this is kind of interesting a patent was filed in the United States for an H-bomb. And I thought to myself, well, you know, you can't violate patent rules and you have to pay anytime you use somebody's patent. Did France and uh, England and uh, South Africa and China and Russia, did they all pay us, you know, for the use of H-bombs? I, I, I just, I'm curious about that, I don't know. I just, I saw this and I thought I have to include that today because it's, it's something that interests me is how can you patent an H-bomb, but they did. And it would have had to have been the United States that did that, not an individual, because obviously it was a collective work. It took a lot of minds, and you have to know how to make Deuteronom, uh, meld with uh, whatever in the middle of this compact thing of uh, high explosives. And it's a very technical thing, and it took a lot of minds to put that together. So the United States had to be the one that patented that. And uh, there you go. 1959, this is very, very fun to me. Uh, the word Frisbee. Became a registered trademark of. Does anybody know who Whammo? I didn't think anybody would get that Whammo uh, trade. Uh, got the uh, trademark on frisbees. It was not in the 1800s when uh, Marty McFly went back and remember that when he picked up the thing, he said, "Hey, frisbee." And no, it wasn't back then. It was uh, 1959, and it was Whammo. And uh, I just I, I find that just wonderful. I remember the old Whammo commercials and uh, our first frisbee out at down at the Cabanas here, and uh, it just great stuff. Anyway, 1975, our last one, American stuntman, Evil Knievel, suffered severe spinal injuries in Britain when he crashed while attempting to jump 13 buses. Okay, he suffered severe spinal injuries like every six minutes. The guy was, he was a glutton for punishment. He, uh, he you know, I remember watching the one, uh, uh, what was it, out in uh, Las Vegas, the Venus de Milo, what? Caesar's Palace, thank you. And Oh, just watching that. You can watch it on YouTube, and it is brutal what this man did to his body. But I will tell you the good news about Evel Knievel. And probably most of you know this. If you don't, it'll lighten your heart. Uh, he was dying. Yeah, actually, he should have died like 50 times beforehand. He, you know, and he had a bad liver, and he had this and that. But he was really dying this time. This is his final checkout and uh, he accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior on public TV at the uh, Crystal Cathedral, which is Robert Schuller. which I won't get into that today, but uh, anyway, he did accept Jesus Christ, and he was baptized, and his baptism caused many to be baptized because they realized this guy is mortal. We used to think that he is Mr. Immortal, and he's really going off to uh, a- another place, and he knows that he is going to a better place now and I want that too. So praise God for how he moves the human heart even in a guy that spent his life drinking and doing things that he probably shouldn't have been doing to his body. So there you go that's this day in history 26 May and uh, we'll go ahead and read our text for today. This is Genesis 31 verses 14 through 30 and uh, I got a couple people that have never been here before and I'd like you to know that our the sermon is always just a very detailed analysis of uh, the uh, Bible. It's not so much a life application here. So I hope I will give a couple life applications and I hope you'll be blessed by this. But um, uh, it, it, it's more just people understanding God's word uh, in the way that I believe will bring him honor and help us to understand what God is trying to tell us. Um, Genesis 31, 14 through 30 says... <clears throat> Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels and he carried away all his livestock and his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padan Aram to go to his father, Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household (laughs) idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and spoke to him Uh, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might've sent you away with joy and songs with timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly longed for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Now I'll tell you, before I get into this, I have some uh, throat lozenges. If anybody has a, uh, a cough, anybody else, please. I know we got a little red tide and and uh, all kinds of spring stuff, so they're in there somewhere. Please enjoy. Um, Anyway, there we go. Today's sermon is going to have a lot more historical details and less pictures of things to come than the previous sermons that we've gone through, but we'll also see a few things that we can apply to our lives, especially concerning the conduct of Laban, who is the mother of Jacob's wives, The Bible gives us stories and we can often take from it lessons about our own habits and our own conduct. And what we do with our lives is ultimately on record, just as these accounts are. Someday we will stand before the judge of all mankind and we will be evaluated. And that's something we need to remember. These people, their life story is on record, but ours is as well. And we need to make sure that we conduct ourselves in a way that we assume that everybody in the world is going to see every word that we have to say to other people and how we act in private you know as jesus said what's uh, hidden in the darkness will be revealed in the light that's a misquote of what he said but we need to remember that this this following of jacob's life is something that is going to happen to each one of us when we stand before the lord so let's take today's story like all the others and think on the things that happen also let's remember that while we're reading this story is a true story of god's people how they got started and how they interacted with others today jacob is going to be on his trek back to uh, canaan and towards his family home and so let's join him in this trek and uh, we'll learn as we go our text verse for today comes from zechariah chapter 2 it says for thus says the lord of hosts he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Zechariah says that Israel is a people, or he shows us that Israel is a people that are united to each other and to God in a singularly unique way. But Israel is more than a people. Israel is a concept of uniting and restoring God to the people of the world. Jacob has been in a form of exile and now he's going to head home. Israel was twice in exile and twice they were brought back home as well. These people are, as Zechariah tells us, the apple of God's eye. As believers in Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel, we become a part of the people of God. By knowing the Genesis stories, we can see God's hand upon his people and his care for them. And we can have assurance that he is also caring for us in the same way. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first one is considered as strangers. Last week, we saw Jacob explain to his wives why he intended to return to Canaan. He'd been cheated by Laban, but God watched over him and provided for him. Finally, the Lord told him directly that he was to return home. This then is where we start today with the reply of his wives. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Now, at times the Bible says something that needs to be taken in the context of how the words are formed. If I were to say to you, John and Tom answered their boss and he said, we'll have that done by lunchtime, we would know, that one of them answered for both because he is singular. And this is what's happened right here. In the Hebrew, the verb is singular, even though both Rachel and Leah are mentioned in this verse. So one of the two is actually answering for both of them, but they both agree. They obviously feel that they've gotten a raw deal from their dad. When they got married, if you remember, Laban gave each one of them only one servant when he could have given them many more, just like uh, his Laban's sister Rebecca got many when she went to marry Isaac down in the land of Canaan. And to these two girls since then, his attitude has been the same. He's given them nothing and they know that nothing else is coming. Whatever inheritance they otherwise expected is never going to come. And anything else he has is certainly going to be given to his sons when he dies. They know that they are going to be entirely excluded from the inheritance. Now, one thing to think about as we continue on here, and this is important, the minuteness of the details. Now, this is just a regular pastoral family in a world that is full of people by now. By this time in human history, there will once again be hundreds of millions of people on earth. There were governments which were stretching as far as Europe all the way out to uh, Asia. And by this time, there would also be large uh, empires moving to the south as well, such as in Egypt and either further south, like the Ethiopians. And yet for all of the kingdoms and all of the kings all over the world, the Bible is silent on what they were doing. God's word and his attention for our learning is focused on one man, his family, and his struggles in life. Despite all of the wealth, all of the pomp, and all of the power of all of the world's kingdoms, God is focused on the family of a middle-classed, shepherd. As Matthew Henry says about such an account, the Bible teaches people the common duties of life, how to serve God, how to enjoy the blessings he bestows, and to do good in the various stations and duties of life. But more importantly than even what Matthew Henry said, these accounts serve two other purposes. The first is that they show us how God called, maintained, and has cared for his people And secondly, they give us pictures of what he will continue to do in the future as he unfolds his plan for the people that he will call. Verse 15, and are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. Rachel and Leah can look back over the past 20 years and reflect on the fact that their father actually sold each one of them for Jacob's labors. And this implies that because he was a hired hand, they too are just like hired hands to their dad. As Jacob's wives, they're in no greater position than he is. Just as Jacob was a stranger, they are reckoned in the same way. And he didn't only sell them, but he also consumed all of the profit that he made off of them. In the Hebrew, they repeat the word eat. It says there, and that indicates that Laban had devoured what he had gotten, and he continues to devour it even to the present time there was nothing left and he had eaten it all and he was eating away everything that was coming in as it came Laban is perfectly pictured by Proverbs 30 verse 15 there it says the leech has two daughters give and give Laban did have two daughters Rachel and Leah and he sold them for give and give Laban is the man who does not understand the principles of moderation and prudence. Speaking of the vanity of selfish toil, Solomon tells us this in Ecclesiastes chapter four. He says, again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work that a man is envied by his neighbor, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Sounds just like Laban, verse 16. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Jacob had acquired all of his livestock and wealth from Laban's flocks. These were his wages and what came about was agreed on in advance, even though Laban changed the wages many times. It always came out in favor of Jacob. God had blessed him. But the wives looked at everything that they had as their deserved inheritance. In the end, we read again what Matthew Henry says, God forced Laban to pay his debts, both to his servant and to his daughters. Now, you know me, I'm not one who believes in tithing. It's not a biblical uh, mandate for the New Testament church, but I will say this, we are to give our share in life to God, to our family, and to our government. I know a CPA right over the bridge here, and he will testify to the fact that when a person cheats in one way, they will inevitably lose that same money in another way. What you don't give to God for what he renders to you, he is going to remove from you in some other special way so that you know that you should have given it to him. When you cheat the government in taxes, you're only going to fritter away what you cheated in another meaningless way. In the end, being charitable and being fair comes with its rewards, all right? Our second thought today, heading for home. Verse 17, then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Now, once the decision is made, the action is taken. It doesn't matter how large their camp is, the people are tent dwellers. And they, along with all of the people in the flocks, which could have filled an entire valley, could be completely gone in just a couple hours. The only thing that would left, be left would be the holes in the ground where the tent posts had been. At this time, it's good to note that Reuben, the oldest son is about 12 years old and that Joseph, the youngest son, is probably about six years old. And so because of their youth, he puts all of them on camels and off they head to Canaan. Verse 18, and he carried away all of his livestock and all of his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. The word gained here is the Hebrew word rahash, and it's used twice in this one verse to indicate that he took only what he had gained Everything that went with him had been acquired by him and nothing had been stolen. This word Rahash, it's used only five times in the entire Bible and all five of them are in the book of Genesis. It is always used in connection with wealth, which is either taken into or out of the land of Canaan by Abraham, by Jacob and by Esau. And we'll see later that when he gets down just before he moves into the promised land, he's gonna meet his brother Esau, he's gonna give him 580 animals as a present. That along with everything else that he keeps indicates that in the six years that he has worked, he has become a very, very wealthy man. Verse 19, now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Now, while Jacob is preparing the flock to move, Rachel and Leah probably go back home and they gather whatever things they have that belong to them in the house. And this was at a time when Laban is off shearing his sheep. And it tells us the fact that he is shearing his sheep somewhere is that he hadn't lost everything to Jacob. He's got his own flock that he he, uh, is tending to. And they are a three-day journey away from where Jacob is. Now, while the daughters are back at their home, it says that Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. The word here is the word teraphim. And... That's uh, a word that is described several other times in the Bible, actually quite a few times in the Bible. And if you ever want a giant headache, go ahead and read all of the commentaries on what people believe these teraphim were. And I gotta tell you what, for every commentator, there is an opinion. And some of them, I gotta tell you, were very insightful. Some of these commentaries on what these teraphim were, were just, it was brilliant what people were thinking, just ingenious but it's actually unknown what they really were. Later in verse 30, Laban is gonna call these things Elohei, which means gods. And so they are probably, and this is just Charlie speculating, they're probably little uh, figures that, like what people put in their houses today, Buddhas or you know, Feng Shui or something like that. It's like a good luck charm to have in your home. That's probably what they are. It is Rachel who stole them. And as we've seen time and time again, she is a picture of grace. Leah is a picture of the law. Uh, uh, Rachel is a picture of grace, and so she probably did this to show the ineffectiveness of these teraphim to do anything at all or to deliver her uh, to help her father in any way so what she 's doing is she 's taking them to deliver her father from idolatry and this thought of him being you know delivered from idolatry goes all the way back to the fourth century. A guy named Theodoret suggested it and later a Jewish scholar also made a similar commentary. He said that it was to deliver her father from idol worship. Now, what Rachel will do with these in the coming verses will show us the contempt that she actually has for these idols. She certainly wasn't expecting them to help her in any way. Now, if Laban was a believer in the Lord, and I assume that he probably was, his devotion to the Lord is divided. What Rachel is doing here is something that nowadays we would call iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is the deliberate destruction of icons and idols and statues and other things within religious circles, all right? Iconoclasm is found in the Old Testament. If you've ever read like the, the uh, uh, story of King Josiah, he's called Good King Josiah because he brought national reforms to the people of Israel. And when he did, he went all through the land of Israel and he took idols that were set up all over the place and he destroyed them, he burned them, he ground them to dust, he threw them into the river. He took the uh, uh, bones of the uh, priests that served these idols and he threw them on the graves of the common people and he just did everything he could do to defile idol worship in the land. But it's also found in the church age as well. And I tell you, the Protestant Reformation, which just kind of, like I said, it's kind of odd that this happened on this day in history because the Protestant Reformation, which came about at the time of Luther, was one of the highlights of iconoclasm. People turned away from the open idolatry of the Roman church and back to worshiping God without idols. However, idol worship, and if you don't know this, I'm going to read this to you, and this is what I said. Some people may be offended by this. I I can't help them. Idol worship is still very strong in the Roman church, even today. I'm gonna give you an example of this. One of them is that the Pope will often issue edicts. And you don't have to trust me on this. You just go to the Vatican website, which is vatican.org or whatever, and uh, uh, they publish everything that the Pope signs as an edict, and they publish everything he says in the open forum throughout his Pope day. And uh, they will often issue from the papacy edicts, which, grant indulgences if you pray to statues of Mary. Now, right, now I wanna explain what indulgences are. Indulgences are basically get out of purgatory early uh, receipts, okay? Purgatory is not something that is biblical. It's not something you're ever gonna find in the Bible. But what it is, is after a certain amount of time within church history, the Catholic church consolidated its power. And along with power comes money. And in order to get more money from the people to, to pay for all of their ever expanding power, they came up with the idea of purgatory. Purgatory is a place where you go before you go to heaven. Okay, it's saying that the blood of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to save you and take you straight to heaven when you die. In other words, there's this interim place and you will go there and you have to work your way out of there. You can either do it in this life, ching ching, or you can do it in the next life and you work your way out of purgatory. Now, in order to work your way out of purgatory in this life, you can pay the church money or they will give you certain things you can do. You know, you can pray to statues or whatever. uh, uh, Indulgences are no longer sold within the Catholic church. That was taken away when the Protestant Reformation came around. They showed what an abuse of power it was. They stopped selling them. However, they still do grant them. They'll grant them if you read your Bible for a certain number of hours a day, or they'll grant them if you, uh, like I say, pray to a statue of Mary. So here the Pope is, why would they continue with this concept of purgatory even though they no longer sell indulgences? The reason why is because even though they're not making money off of it, it is still a type of bondage. It is keeping people believing that they're not gonna to go to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Instead, they're gonna to go to this little repository. So the church has people in bondage to do the things that they want them to do. And that's why they continue with this practice of teaching purgatory. Um, But anyway, uh, that's just something that uh, uh, goes hand in hand with the Roman Catholic Church. And what I want to do is I want to read you this now. And I want you to listen very carefully to what is going on. And you can read this, like I say, anytime on the Catholic website. I picked one from uh, 19 August of 2008 just because it's, it's very striking what it tells the people to do. This is... Uh, 19 August, 2008, it comes from zenit.org. It's a uh, site that uh, just monitors what the Pope does. It's a Catholic-friendly website, and they say, look at what our great Pope did today. Here's what it says. Benedict XVI, who's the previous Pope, placed the world in Mary's hands during his one-day visit to the shrine of Our Lady of the Rosary in Pompeii near Naples. The Pope's leading of the supplication of the Blessed Virgin of the Rosary, a prayer written by Blessed Bartolo Longo, was one of the high points of this 12th pastoral trip in Italy. So he's going on his 12th trip around Italy as the Pope, and this is the highlight of it, right here, is that he is placing the world in the hands of Mary. There we go. It says, we implore you, this is him speaking to this statue, we implore you to have pity today on the nations that have gone astray, on all Europe, on the whole world, that they might repent and turn to your heart. Once again, he's speaking to a piece of concrete. He's not speaking to Jesus, he's speaking to a, a statue of Mary. It says, the text of the prayer reads, with the words of Bartolo, the pontiff turned to Mary saying, if you, O concrete, if you will not help us because we are ungrateful and unworthy children of your protection, your concrete protection, we will not know to whom to turn. In a gesture of filial love, the Pope then offered the Madonna, a golden rose. So he's not only praying to a a statue, he's also offering uh, devotions and, uh, you know, full gifts to this statue. And like I say, this is, you can read this right on the Vatican website, but this is the force of idolatry that is going on even in the world today. The leader of over a billion Catholics, there are 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, supposedly placed the fate of the world in the hands of a dead person. He prostrated himself to an image of her and he prayed to it and told it that if it didn't help us, then he had no idea who to turn to. Well, I can tell him who to turn to. Turn to Jesus and get off your face in front of pieces of wood and stone. John, the apostle John wrote three epistles. And at the end of his first epistle, which spoke solely about Jesus as the word, love, light and the truth, and other noble ideas closes with these words. Here's what he says. And we know, tell me he didn't write this to the Pope. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he finishes with these words. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Never. Never. Not once does the Bible ask us to direct our thoughts, our attention, or our eyes towards any person, living or dead, except Jesus. Praying to Mary, to the saints, or to any other person other than God, through Jesus, is both inappropriate and it is a violation of the message of the Bible. This is what is going to bring about the wrath of God on an unrepentant world. It is no less, and I mean this, it is no less than an abomination This is what Rachel was trying to keep her father from, the sin of idolatry. Verse 20, Then Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. Now, what's interesting in this verse is that a form of the word ganab, which was used to describe Rachel stealing Laban's idols, is used in this verse to describe what Jacob has done by stealing away, by fleeing. She stole the idols, and he stole away or more specifically it says, ya'akov et lev stole Jacob Laban's heart. The heart in the Bible is the seed of understanding. It's where in modern times we say we think with our mind, but in the Bible understanding comes from the heart. And so this is a way of saying that he deceived Laban through deception, but it could have a second meaning. John Gill commentator from ages past sees it a little differently. He says, by stealing Laban's heart, he stole that which was his heart was set upon, not as God's, Rachel stole these away, nor his daughters, for whom he does not appear to have any great affection and respect, but rather the cattle and the goods Jacob took with him, which Laban's eye and heart were upon. John Gill seems right in this. When Jacob left with all of his wealth, he also left with Laban's heart. Verse 21, so he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. The river here is the Euphrates River, and people argue over how he could have gotten his family, his camels, his flocks, and all of his goods and everything else over the river. One dubious source says that God dried up the river for him to walk over on dry ground. But getting ac- across this river is not that difficult to imagine. There have been rope pulled ferries for eons across rivers, okay, and then we have rope-made bridges that span rivers of the world even to this day. There would have been routes of travel going all over the Middle East, and they would have included these ways of crossing the river. So it's not real difficult to think this through. If God had dried up the river, the Bible would have said as much. How they crossed is far less important than that they crossed in a customary way and they headed for the mountains of Gilead and towards Canaan. The reason why I bring this up is I recommend that you read any commentary and you listen to any preacher, including Charlie Garrett and his words, and you take those things with a grain of salt, all right? Anytime you read a commentary and you insert that into your mind and it's wrong, you are now wrong on what the Bible is telling you. And I'm gonna give you an example so you can get just a real life example of this. Has anybody ever heard uh, a sermon or read a commentary where um, Saul is going up to Damascus to persecute the Christians, Saul, who became Paul, and uh, he was thrown off of his horse in the process. I've heard that, I I gotta tell you, I've heard that in at least 10 sermons, and I've read it in commentaries, and I gotta tell you what, horse is never mentioned in the book of Acts, okay, in, in that context. It's not mentioned at all. All it says is that he fell to the ground. He could have been walking to Damascus, and he could have just fell on his face. He could have been, and more probably than a horse, been riding on a camel, and fell off the camel to, on his face. The Bible doesn't say, and that might be, seem like it's trifling with things, but it's not. And the reason why I say this is because every single word of God is pure. The Bible tells us that. And when we add into our teaching or our thoughts or our instruction about something that's wrong, even if it's just coming off of a horse, that is introducing something that the Bible did not intend. And this is very, very, very important. So always remember to take everything you hear with a grain of salt until you have checked it out yourself, all right? Our third thought today, the perpetual fountain. Verse 22, and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. In a previous sermon, we learned that Laban's flocks were kept three days journey apart from Jacob's. And this was so that they wouldn't get intermingled because the color of the animal is what determined the owner of the animal. Because of this, it took three days for Laban to hear the news. Verse 23, then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. Here it says that Laban took his brethren with him. Because of this, it was probably six days after Jacob left. It would have taken three days to get to Laban, three more to return to Haran and then seven days to catch up to Jacob while he's pursuing him. And this seems likely because of the distance from Haran to Gilead where they finally did meet up. Jacob is traveling with children, he's traveling with flocks and all of these other things. It's going to take at least 13 days to get this far. Laban could do the same thing in about seven days. After this time though, Laban comes very close to him on Mount Gilead. Now the meaning of Gilead is rather hard to pin down, but Jones's dictionary of Old Testament proper names says that it comes from two words. The first is gula, which means spring or fountain. And the second is ad, which means in perpetuity. So this would then be translated as the perpetual fountain. And that's gonna become important in future uh, sermons. All right, verse 24. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. The translation here in the New King James Version makes it sound like Laban can't say anything at all to Jacob. To speak neither good nor bad means you can't say anything. This is probably not a great translation. Instead, in Hebrew, it says, mitov ad which means from good to evil. And that could actually be two things that came to mind. The first one is either don't start speaking nicely to him and then accuse him of doing wrong from good to evil. Or it could mean that because God decided that Jacob should return to Canaan, that Laban shouldn't promise anything to have him come back to Haran to work for him, that would be good, or that he shouldn't threaten him if he doesn't come back to evil, from good to evil. God has made the decision, and so Laban needs to not speak from good to evil concerning this matter. And I gotta tell you what, perfect life application right here is Laban was given God's word. It was done in the form of a vision, all right? And anybody here that knows me well enough knows that I do not believe that people get visions today, and I do not believe that the Lord speaks to us today. And the reason why is because the Bible says God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and the Bible is what reveals Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, had two purposes. The first was to testify of Jesus, and then, I'm sorry, the second purpose, the purpose of the spirit was to testify to jesus and the word is to testify to jesus because the spirit gave us the word then it's testifying to jesus now the point i'm making here is that laban had god's word through a vision and he was told you were to do this thing and we have god's word now whether i'm wrong or not whether you believe that god speaks to us or not it's irrelevant to what i'm saying just to understand that if god does speak to you through a vision or if it's through his word that we are to obey it and i can assure you that whether God speaks to us in visions today or not, he did speak to us through his word and we are to obey it. And that brings up a crucial point to Charlie Garrett. If we are to obey God's word, we cannot obey it unless we know it. And that's why I say it again and again and again, read your Bible, never stop reading your Bible every morning when you get up, every night before you go to bed and throughout the day. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care what mood you're in. The more you read your Bible, the more you are being connected to the creator who loves you enough to give you this word in the first place. So please, just as Laban was told, don't do this thing and do this thing, we are given the same instruction and it comes through the pages of the Bible. All right, verse 25. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. I gotta tell you, I am not sure why. The New King James Version uses the term mountains here. Okay, It says it again and again in these verses, but I gotta tell you, the word is singular. It says har, not harim in uh, the Hebrew, and therefore it should say mount. Now, some translations say in the hill country, some say in the mountains, and some say uh, on the mount. The correct translation would be singular. So I don't know why they've done that, but I just want you to know, so as you're reading the Bible, sometimes translators do things that are, may maybe a little off and they may get you off on a wrong tangent. Anyway, verse 26, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Here's Laban as if uh, if I've done nothing wrong over the past 20 years. Laban's comments here to Jacob are as if he's some type of a marauder who had come in and stolen his daughters away. And this was, and it still is a very common thing in the world today, And the people who do it are the lowest of all. In America, we would call them kidnappers. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we have a group of people called the Amalekites and they were Israel's great enemies. And they did this to David. While he and his men were out preparing for battle, the Amalekites came and stole away his family and all of his goods. And what did David do? He got in pursuit of them, he went after them, he got everything back and he killed all of them with the exception of 400 who got away on camels. This is the type of thing that Laban is accusing Jacob of right here. He's saying that he's an outlaw and he's a kidnapper by what he's done. Verse 27, why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might've sent you away with joy, songs, timbrel, and harp. In an attempt to get the upper hand in uh, the negotiations, which are certainly coming, Laban says what he would have done if things had gone differently. Of course, I would have thrown you this big party and I would have had a rock concert for you and everything else. He notes the fun that they would have had would have enjoyed these four things, joy, songs, timbrel, and harp. And what he says almost mirrors the kind of celebration that we are to give to God, all right? And this is recorded in the 81st Psalm. I wanna read it to you. Sing aloud, sing aloud to God our strength. Make joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp, with the lute. So it's almost mirroring what Laban is saying he's going to do. That's what we are to do to God. All right. Now, one of the instruments that is mentioned here, the harp, is mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and it is actually the basis for the Hebrew name of the Sea of Galilee. The harp is a kinnor, okay? And the Sea of Galilee is known as Kinneret because of its shape. It looks like one of these type of harps. So, If you don't remember anything else from today's sermon, I would hope that you would remember that the Sea of Galilee is named after this ancient instrument that actually goes back even before the flood of Noah. In fact, it goes back to the fourth chapter of Genesis. In the line of Cain, there's a person named Javan or Javalt. And he is the one that uh, began to play music the first time. So this harp called a kinnor is the basis for the name Kinneret, which is the Sea of Galilee. Okay, there's a squiggle for your brain today. Verse 28, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. When Laban says his sons and his daughters, he's speaking about his grandchildren as well as his his two daughters. The term in Hebrew is inclusive of all of them. Having said this, he probably hasn't kissed his daughter since the night of their marriage. He's simply making a show of what he would have done. like most of us will do from time to time. Everything is nicer when it didn't really happen. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) We tend to make up a fancy dream in our head and say that it's so because there's no proof that it wouldn't have happened. However, our delusions are rarely shared with the people around us, and Laban's delusions are still being disbelieved 4,000 years later. He is a bag of wind, and he is a man of pretense, but of no substance. Verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. What he says here is obviously true or he wouldn't have pursued him at all. It is in his power to do him harm, but God wouldn't allow it. What makes it all the more ironic is the way that he speaks to Jacob. In Hebrew, he says, yesh la'el yadi la'asot imachem ra." My hand serves me as my God to do you evil. In other words, I am my own source of power and I could have done whatever I wanted to you. But he found out that there is another, a greater power that he had no control over. To get a picture of Laban's attitude here, we can read something very similar from the book of Habakkuk chapter one. This is speaking about the armies of the Chaldeans. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps and they capture them. They sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Now, I will tell you this, and I was thinking about this as I was uh, going through this particular verse. If uh, anybody knows what the WWE is, it's the world wrestling whatever, and you see it on ION TV. So if you watch ION TV, you'll always see their ads coming up. And uh, you see these guys that are just massive, They're big and they're strong and they're healthy. And, uh, you know, they do all kinds of crazy things with their hand to make them look like they're more powerful. And they, you know, they do things like this in front of the TV and they just act, you know, like I'm brutal and I can handle anything. And I was thinking about every, I think of it every time that they come onto the screen, I think the same thing. And I was thinking about it for these verses is that when I was young and I'm 48 years old, so it wasn't too long ago, but uh, when I was young, there was a guy called, Arnold Schwarzenegger and he was the big thing in the world and as a matter of fact they called him the Austrian oak he won the mystery universe title more than any person ever won it in history well I got to tell you what this guy this Austrian oak is now the California cantaloupe he's big he's saggy it's true he's he's just he's he's fallen to pieces okay these men that are so strong and that think that their strength is their God in just a few years are gonna be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're gonna be defeated in their bodies and they're gonna be suffering, just like all of us that are getting older are suffering. And we have choices to make in our life where our priorities are. Is it in our strength? Is it in our wealth? I mean, we are on Siesta Key and I'm blessed enough to live out here because my grandfather made a decision 65 years ago to move here or I wouldn't be out here. But there are people that have gigantic houses out here And they believe that their God is their wealth and that that will keep them free from any harm. Just like Arnold Schwarzenegger was once the Austrian Oak. And just like the WWE is their own strength and their own God. And we cannot rely on these type of things or any other thing except the Lord. If we put our hope in anything, except him we have made a fundamental error in who we are as human beings in relation to the world that we live in because we are going to pass away and that's all there is to it i want to read you where you should put your strength this comes from the book of isaiah the 40th chapter he the lord he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might he increases strength even the youths think of the austrian oak or think of the wwe today even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the, the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ is that we're not living in our own strength. And we're not living in our own power. We're living by his strength so that when we are weak, he is strong, all right? And one more thing about this verse. When Laban speaks to Jacob, he says, the God of your father spoke to me last night. When he does this, the plural of the word your is used. And what he is implying is that the entire house belongs to God and not just Jacob. If he wasn't allowed to do anything to Jacob, he wasn't allowed to do anything to Jacob's family as well. The whole family has come under the covenant care of the God of Jacob's father. This might seem like trivia, but I gotta tell you what, it is a rare and singular way of speaking. And this is a lesson which is reflected in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, all right? This is speaking of when a person is married to an unbeliever. And so I want you all to listen to this because you may know somebody that is married to an unbeliever that needs advice about divorce, okay? If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let her not divorce let him not divorce her. He cannot, when it says, let him not divorce her, it means he cannot divorce her. If she is an unbeliever and she wants to stay, he has no right under Christian principles to divorce this person. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let him not, Let her not divorce her him once again let means they cannot that's the the idea of the word get here for the unbelieving here's the reason why paul gives this and it goes right back to what we're talking about with the covenant care of jacob's family for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband and why is that important here it is right here otherwise your children would be unclean but now they are holy nothing unclean can enter the presence of god And all people are born in Adam, which means that we are by nature unclean. Until we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we cannot enter God's presence. And so in his infinite wisdom, God has done something by saying, you cannot divorce this person because if those children go with that spouse, they are no longer considered under the covenant care of God. They are outside of God's favor. And so we need to make absolutely sure that when we... Talk to people about divorce that we understand that the children that are not yet at whatever God's age of accountability is are protected and are secure in the covenant care of God okay that's very important so keep that in mind verse 30 and now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house but why did you steal my God's Laban is saying here that he understands the reason for Jacob leaving. Okay, you miss your father and you miss your father's house, but there is no excuse for you stealing my personal gods. This is kind of funny to think though. If you think this through, it ought to make you almost laugh. Laban's wealth had decreased and Jacob's had steadily increased over the past six years. Jacob's family is now four wives, 11 children, and all of the other flocks and everything that he owns, plus he has one daughter. He has 11 sons and plus one daughter. And after all of this, Laban's gods get stolen, which means they couldn't even protect themselves, much less Laban. And after that, God speaks to him in a dream, and he says that you are not to harm Jacob at all. You'd think he'd be glad to have these stupid idols gone out of his house, but he perversely continues to look for them anyway. Matthew Henry nailed it when he said this, Happy are they who have the Lord for their God. Enemies may steal our goods, but not our God. This is where we have to leave off today with this verse. And I would like you to think about that. Nobody can steal our God from us. He is there with us. They can steal anything from our life that we own, but they can't take away our relationship with him. And we can reflect on other things from today's sermon as well. And we can see how to apply these things to our life How are we gonna deal with these little idols that we have throughout our house or throughout our life? What are we clinging to that's a substitute for God? Are we reading horoscopes in the morning, anybody? Are we knocking on wood? Do we have good luck charms or maybe a good luck crystal hanging in our car or a dream catcher or something, thinking that's gonna do something for us? I gotta tell you what, these things, like in Laban's home, don't help. They only hinder us. And what about how we speak to others? Do we try to justify our past failures like Laban did by claiming he would have done things differently? If only he'd been given the chance, I would have done all of these things differently, but you didn't give me the chance. Laban was a failure at being a father and he was a failure at being a boss as well, but it didn't mean that he had to continue deluding himself in front of everybody. If we have failed others, and I guarantee you, every person here has failed somebody at some point, and I've done it more than most of you, I assure you of that but we can admit it and we can move on in a new direction. We can cover up the things that we do with excuses and with blame, or we can think rightly and we can admit our faults. One more quick thing to think on here is that Laban intended to do harm to Jacob, but God came in and he stopped him. Unlike Laban, we now have God's complete word to us. And I brought this up at least twice in the sermon. This might be the third time. He has completely revealed to us what he expects. called the holy bible we don't need dreams and visions because they're unnecessary he's given us everything we need to do to guide our lives and to know what we should be doing and the decisions we're to make and that's why it's so hugely important to know your bible he's given us people also who can help us with this big complicated book they're called pastors teachers and commentators Now, whether you come to church on the beach or whether you go somewhere else, make sure that you listen and learn and apply the things that you get out of the Bible to your life. Unlike Laban, your walk will be grounded and you will be without excuse or blame. And one more thing before we finish. If you still have a void between you and God, you need to get that fixed first. And I do this every week, whether every person here I know is saved or not, I still say it because I want every person to at least think on it. Jesus is the answer to that void in your life. And if you've never had a moment where you can say, I have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and savior, let me tell you why it's important and how you can. It's important because it goes right back to what I said about 1 Corinthians chapter seven. We are born in Adam. We inherited Adam's sin and we are separated from God. The Bible shows from the very first pages that we are born spiritually dead. It comes right through the father. And that is something we cannot overcome. It is impossible. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, you can't do it. So what did God do in his infinite wisdom? He stepped out of eternity into the time that he created and he united with human flesh in the womb of a woman. That's important because sin transfers through the male, not through the female. So all that she is is a vessel to carry this incarnate human being. He's fully God and he's fully man and he can be the bridge back to God. So what did he do? He's born without sin. He lived the perfect life without sin as well. He never sinned, and therefore he stayed spiritually alive, the thing that Adam lost. And because he did that, he prevailed over the law that God gave, this massive law that shows God's standards, these 613 precepts, which he demands you fulfill every one of them. And if you don't, then there is no hope if you do these things you will live by them but he did those things and after he did them he gave up his life voluntarily and he went to the cross he gave that life up so that you could live and now there's an exchange that god offers the first thing is that if you call on jesus god covers your sins his blood covers your sins and it atones for every wrong thing that you've done but more his sin is nailed to that cross but his righteousness is imputed to you You now stand justified in the presence of an infinitely holy God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so if you have never taken the time to call on him and accept his pardon, today is the day. Today is the day. Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. I want Jesus. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way to be reconciled to God except through him. You will never hear me say that anybody else on earth can ever get to heaven any other way than through the cross of jesus christ and so i would hope that you would make the right decision and that you would call on him and then go out and tell other people about him let the saints of the lord speak out let them say so let them tell the world of the goodness of jesus christ all right please do that our closing verse for today once again this was written to the pope listen to this and tell me it wasn't written to him today isaiah 44 he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Isn't that exactly what I read you exactly? They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. It's hard to talk to Jewish people and Catholics because they're so ingrained in their religion when all they need is a relationship. And that's what we need to tell them. This isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. Next week is Genesis 31, verses 31 through 42. It's 13 verses called, What is my trespass and what is my sin? I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. I got one more thing to read you before we uh, take communion today. And they don't know this, but every week I do a poem based on the verses that we went through. So we're getting very close to a whole poem of the book of genesis today this is called jacob's flight rachel and leah answered and said to him is there still any portion or inheritance for us getting anything from our father's house seems slim we are considered as strangers a minus and not a plus for he has sold us completely and consumed our money for all these riches which god has taken from our father are really ours and our children's this isn't funny now what god has said to you do it without bother Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all the livestock and possessions, which he had gained, yes, all of his mammals, which he had gained despite Laban's oppressions. And he set to go to Isaac, his father to see in the land of Canaan after years 20. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that belonged to her father, that he did keep. But this would make Laban almost homicidal. So Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Aramean, and that he did not tell him he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had, not telling him. He arose and crossed the river quietly, and he headed towards the mountains of Gilead, surely knowing this would make Laban really mad. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled and gone away. Then he pursued him with the brethren he had. For seven days journey he went, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. Yes, seven days time was spent. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him a warning, be careful that you do not speak in a way which would seem either good or bad. Don't forget this in the morning. So Laban overtook Jacob finally. Now Jacob had pitched a tent in the mountain and Laban with his brethren pitched plainly in the mountains of Gilead, the perpetual fountain. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters in this run? like captives taken with the sword so brutally. Why did you flee secretly and steal away from me and not tell me for I might have thrown you a huge party with joy and songs with timbrel and harp. We could have all dressed up and looked really sharp and you didn't allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly like one of the plotters. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful that you speak without alarm, speak neither good nor bad, to Jacob, all right? And now you have surely gone away because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods this way? Doing this makes you seem like a louse. And so continues the story of Jacob's life. It is one filled with trials and one filled with strife. And it is the same for all of us. We have trials and tests that shape who we are. How much better if we know Jesus, trust in him. At these times, it's better by far. This word he has given is meant to help our way and to keep us on a path which is straight and sure. So let's continue to read it each and every day and apply it to our lives to help us endure. Thank you, Lord, for these stories which guide us toward our future glories. Thank you above all for our wonderful Lord who is shown so beautifully in this precious word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for it and we thank you for every little lesson that you give us and uh, how they're just so beautifully orchestrated to show us the beginning to the end and everything that happens in the middle to lead us to you, to give us the insights into your heart and how much you love us. Thank you for that, God. And I would pray for each person here today that you would bless them, just take care of them today and through the week ahead. And Lord, I would pray for each person that has a family member who is uh, serving in the uh, military right now that uh, they would be comforted and that the uh, military member would be safe and secure and uh, we want to thank those who have gone before us who have given the ultimate sacrifice and uh, we just want to honor them at this time in our, uh, our, our nation. It's Memorial Day tomorrow and we just want to thank you for that which has happened in the past which has allowed us the freedoms that we have and that we can meet on a a beach like this and to speak your word and to fellowship with each other and to learn about you and your goodness. And Lord, we just wanna give you praise, glory, and honor. What a wonderful creator you are. Everything is perfect because you have ordained it to be so. And we just wanna praise you for it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, amen.